This is the EWN Podcast Network. You are listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. My guest today, Andrea Davis, uh, I met at uh, the Calgary Association for Professional Speakers, and her story is so unbelievable. It's like, you can't, I'm always amazed that I meet people that have these life experiences. So Andrea, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's just a pleasure, Helen. So wonderful to have the opportunity to share the story with you. Oh, and it's like, it's crazy story. It really is. And, and I'm so glad that, so I think what I'll do is rather than me kind of give, actually, no, I'm going to give a little bit of the, of the story. And then I want, we want to just kind of start in with where you were at and all those things. So I'm just going to read this little bit that I just found here. So on January 13th, 2012 at 2145, which is 945 PM, The Costa Concordia struck a rock in the Tyranian Sea just off the eastern shore of... The island of Gilio. Okay. It tore a 160-foot gash on the port side of her hull, which soon flooded parts of the engine room, cutting power from the engine and ship services. The subsequent follow-up, because I don't want to... I do want you to, you know, speak to that moment in time... But the evacuation of the Costa Concordia took over six hours, and of the 3,200 passengers and and 1,000-plus crew known to have been aboard, 32 had died. The ship's captain at that time was subsequently found guilty of manslaughter, causing a marine accident and abandoning his ship. So, wow. Those aren't, you know, when you meet someone at an event or at a place, that's definitely not a story that you really expect to hear. So... Let's just start, Andrea. So you and your husband were on uh, a holiday. And okay, so you just tell the story. Okay, let me take it from here. So uh, that introduction was great. Thanks, Helen. You had really extracted very pertinent information. So Lawrence and I were on vacation. It was kind of a dream vacation. He had never been to Europe. And we were cruising having left our family in South Africa, so we needed some wonderful downtime. And really, we went from an absolute unbelievable high to a total crash. It was Friday, the 13th of January. We had spent an amazing day in Rome, which I need not tell you just how exciting and eccentric that was. We had met up with good friends, got back to the cruise ship, arranged to meet for drinks, and we were just so elated. We were having the time of our lives, listening to this jazz musician, and eventually we dragged ourselves into dinner. We were already late, had a couple of glasses of wine, and sat down, ordered our dinner, when all of a sudden, from nowhere, I recall hearing this scraping noise and immediately there was just chaos, pitch darkness. The ship was listing, everything was tumbling, food and debris, chandeliers, wine all over me, broken glasses, and of course, people screaming. 
Little did we know, in fact, what had caused the impact at the time. We ducked under the table for protection of everything falling down on top of us until probably what felt like moments later, but it might have been seconds. There was emergency light lit up on the floor and the crew started trying to get everybody out of the dining room. Imagine there were thousands of people, absolute chaos. Nobody, very few people spoke a common language. Nobody knew what was going on. And step by step, there was a total stampede trying to make sense and find an opening doorway in the pitch darkness. I had kicked my shoes off under the table and shouted out to Lawrence, grab my shoes, when immediately I put my foot onto the floor and felt all the shattered glass. We grabbed my shoes and my purse and made our way out the dining room amidst the stampede. And Lawrence shouted to me, I'm going up to our cabin to get our life jackets. As something, some sense, instinct, we talk about instinct, where it comes from, I'll never know. I said to him, don't leave me. Don't leave me. We never know if we'll be able to find each other again. Little did we know at that point there was no power, there was no electricity, there was no way the elevator was working. We could have gotten up to the cabin. I recall hearing our friends who we were having dinner with that night. She shouted across to her boyfriend at the time, I told you I didn't want to get onto this cruise ship. I'm not getting back tomorrow, she said. I'm flying home. Well, little did we know, none of us were getting back tomorrow. But how were we going to get off? Yeah, so so I just want to interject in here. So I know I've done a couple of cruises. And so before you actually get on the first day, you have to go through that training with the lifeboats, correct? That's right. And had you done that? Well, there was a lot written up in the press. It was a very unusual circumstance, Helen. The way this particular cruise company organized this route in Europe, because I guess it was such a small geographical route, passengers were able to get on and off each day of the week at a different port as long as they cruised the entire week. So we had had the privilege of being on the ship for five days and were quite comfortably settled and had had the life draw on the first day that we sailed. But on that afternoon, having left the port of Rome, I would imagine the majority of the passengers had only got onto the ship that afternoon and most of the passengers had not had the life draw even gone as far as unpacking or settling down in their cabins. Wow. That added to the chaos, I am sure. But having said that, there was so much chaos that I don't even believe that the life draw that we had even helped us because the biggest problem was is that the crew were so misinformed and they themselves didn't know what to do. And it took hours until 
there was any evidence that there was an accident and that the evacuate ship signal was called. In fact, Lawrence and I found ourselves hovering around the guest services desk, which was in close proximity to the dining room that we had evacuated. And my intention as I communicated to him, at least if we hear around guest services, we're going to be amongst the first few to know what's going on and to be given some information. Little did we know at the time that passengers who had already made their way out of this immediate circle of chaos made their way out to the evacuation deck and to that some of the passengers were already on lifeboats and being taken across to the island. Where it was hours before we had any chance not until the evacuate ship signal was called. So we thought we so had trusted the crew and that the crew would guide us, but in fact the crew less knew just as much as we did, and it was really a misrepresented trust. Did you know that uh, the ship was taking on water? No, we had no idea. Point? As my recollection is, as we were being ushered out the dining room amongst all the screaming, there was an announcement over the PA to the degree of uh, attention, attention, there has been an electrical failure. We are doing everything we can to look into this and we'll keep you informed. Please be patient. We will get back to you. Mm. And that's what was the only information we were informed. During the night, there were messages that were being broadcast because it was such a conglomeration of nationalities. It was really, really difficult to hear anything because as each announcement came in a multiple of languages, English was way down on the line by which time there was so much panic from what was being announced by people around us, we couldn't even hear. And understanding that there was so much movement and noise and creaking on the ship itself from this mass of metal and the churning and being thrown around, we couldn't hear the announcements. We had no idea what was going on. Oh, my gosh. How... Were you frightened or just kind of like, what the heck is going on? Helen, you, I, can't answer, I can't answer myself. You know, this is so many years down the line. We're just about approaching the 10th anniversary. And, of course, that's a question I ask myself all the time. I don't believe that I was in panic mode. I, I honestly feel that... There was an aura around me that my sense of reality was removed because I could not have reacted in the calm, still way that we managed to proceed through the night. I suppose when, you know, like, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever been in a situation where it was uh, any, or I know I haven't been in any situation like that. But, you know, when you watch it on TV, you watch these disasters that happen and you're watching it, and you know, you're safe and you're kind of just watching and you think, 
it almost seems surreal, but it is. it must be when you're standing in the moment itself, you really don't have, you're not looking at the whole picture. When you're watching it on on the movies, you know, I'm thinking of Titanic, of course, and no one really knew what was going on. And so you don't like, do you panic or you don't panic? You know what I mean? Like, And that's uh, absolutely the reality. You worded that so well, because at the time you don't know what's going on. You don't know what the reality is. So you don't know neither what's behind you nor what's in front of you. You're only trusting and depending on instruction and what we trusted was professionalism in front of us, which only later did we realize that there was no amount of trust being put into their hands. It was hours until the emergency evacuate ship signal was called. And from that moment on, we started, it was mechanical. It was left, right, left, right. Follow what's in front of you. Put your head in front of your limbs and go wherever you can. So we were ushered out onto one side of the ship that was in fact had fallen over on the opposite side. So we were so high, we couldn't get onto a life raft. The life rafts were not able to sail away because the angle of the ship now was it was too extreme. We had to go back through the hull of the ship, which was the biggest trauma, as you say. At that point, we realized there was water just everywhere. The doors were hanging on the frames. People were walking through glass panes. I recall seeing smashed faces and people holding on to broken limbs and people screaming in front of us and it was just darkness, just darkness, until we got to the other deck. We made our way eventually to the other deck where we believed there were life rafts sailing away from, but little did we know because there was such chaos, there were more people than only half of the life rafts because what was on the other half couldn't sail away. The people were jumping from higher decks and parents were screaming for children and children were being taken from by the crew that were obviously in childcare, screaming for parents. And Helen, as we're talking now, such a 10 years down the line, uh, my senses, my smell and the sounds and the metal churning and the water splashing and the people screaming. It it just leaves me totally cold. Yeah, and, we, and we're going to talk about this at some point, but the trauma that you suffered, and I think that that's really important. You know, whenever you're going through something like that, you go into a, a do survival mode where you're not really absorbing and processing it. You don't have time to stand there and go, oh, this is happening. Oh, you know, you're not thinking about... I know when um, the flood of 2013 um, in Canmore happened, well, in, in Alberta, there were people saying they were, they were, you know, they were just trying to get out of the houses that were, you know, filling up with water. And one man took his microwave and it, it made no sense, but... You know, you're not going to make sense in that kind of chaos and that trauma. But like you say, 
it's a, it, I don't know what the word is, but I don't want to use the word interesting because I think that's really crass, but it is when you stand there and think about what you went through, now your thoughts are catching up with the trauma that you were actually standing in. The reality of the trauma only set in totally after the fact. I can't even say hours because the the extreme of the trauma lived with us for for months after and each day as we progressed onto the next step the the volume of the trauma just became magnified at the time we didn't had no perception of what was going on around us it was just go where go where your body's moving There's kind of like a tunnel, there's kind of like a space that's vacuuming into the next step and the next step. There was a time where we got to the front and we were about to get onto the lifeboat in front of us. The gate was closed and they were trying to organize all these people from all over on the life raft. And the crew signaled out, we have room for one only Well, Lawrence and I looked at each other and stood by and let people behind us jump on. All we knew is that we were in this together and really through the night, we're just blessed that we did manage to keep together. And I think in that itself, we managed to keep each other calm and made our way to, I'm not sure how much more detail you want me to go into. Well, but ultimately- I mean, that's up, that's up to you. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't want you, I, I know when you're reliving a trauma, um, you know, the worst part about remembering is reliving it again. And I think people don't get that, um, it, whether it's the extreme of a, of a, a massive ship and you don't know what's going on is sinking or it's a it's a loss of whatever your loss is the worst part about remembering is remembering and i think people don't know who haven't had those experiences that you really do remember and recall every detail in absolute with absolute clarity so to me i don't want to be the bystander looking at the car accident driving by if you're comfortable to tell me the more then please do if you're not andrea I totally get it. I mean, this story covers so many topics, so it's completely up to you, my friend. It's really interesting that you mention that the story covers so many topics because, again, I can only say until we lived through the trauma and understood what we were living through, we didn't realize and notice the, the multitude of complexities that we now lived with and that each chapter of our lives going forward was not where we had left it. So we will get involved in that down the line and let's talk about uh, the morning after the night before, such as it was. Okay, so you were still, now what, at what point during that six hours of recovery, of evacuation, how long were you and Lawrence on that ship before you got to a place where you wanted to, I imagine, uh, kneel down and kiss the ground. (laughs) I I, I guess being in Italy, we could have done that, right? But it it literally was ours. As as you had mentioned, the accident happened shortly after nine. And Lawrence's 
the only judgment of time that we have is that Lawrence's watch stopped at 10 after 12. Now, to take you deeper into the hours in the evening, we continued to try and make our way to a lifeboat, some form of evacuation. There were few people left and very little choice, so we just made our way to where we thought there was actively going to be some kind of rescue vessel. In front of us, there was the crew were trying to, with hammer and axes, chop down and break the barrel of an inflatable life raft. And again, because of the trauma of the accident, and we will never know if these parts were efficiently, efficiently maintained and serviced and in working order. But of course, after the trauma of the accident, nothing worked properly. So the inflatable raft that was supposed to inflate, they were having trouble getting it off. And eventually when they did and it began inflating, the ship was listing at such a degree that the inflatable vessel became entrapped under the falling metal beams. Now, Lawrence and I had this in front of us, this vision of our only chance of safety, just becoming no option. It's not going to work for us. Together, we looked at each other. Again, we didn't think of the implications. We didn't think behind us. We didn't think in front of us. We only knew the water was coming up on our, above our knees by now. We were going down with a sinking ship. Our only chance was to jump off and to jump away from this churning metal that was falling faster and faster oh and taking us with her at an incredible pace. Together we grabbed onto each other and stepped off. You would imagine jumping we didn't have to jump down because we were already well within the water. We had to jump away from the cruise ship that was falling and tumbling behind us. During the night, while we were standing at the deck, on the deck, we noticed that there was light on the other side of the ocean. Remembering this is freezing cold, middle of winter in the Mediterranean, dark. We then got to realize, I'm going to answer your question, which led me into this conversation. It was 12.10 a.m. that Lawrence's watch stopped working. We imagine that was the time that we impacted the water. We had no idea where we were. We had no idea where we were going. We had no idea where these emergency vessels were being taken to. All we knew was we were making our way in the direction of light on the other side. Were you swimming at this point? or were, We were like, swimming. We oh were swimming. Oh my gosh, Andrea. Yeah, yeah. 
For most of the time, I'm going to take you back a step and say we didn't even as far as have life jackets. If you recall, we were instructed at any given time to go back to your cabin to get your life jacket before evacuating ship. Well, of course, there was no chance we could have done that. And by the time we got to evacuate and we got to the deck, there were no life jackets left. Everybody had been scrambling for anything in sight. At the time that I rejected jumping onto the lifeboat that there was room for one only, I screamed out to them, I'm not getting on, but please throw me a life jacket, which they did. So at that point between us, we had one, which Lawrence took because he's the stronger all around. And during the course of the night, we did manage to pick up another life jacket on the deck. So at the time of jumping into the water, we both had life jackets. We held on to each other. Lawrence held on to the shoulder of my jacket and, in fact, flipped over onto his back because the life jacket gives you buoyancy, which is a totally different swimming that we'd ever been taught or realized you would have to do at the time of trauma, right? I had also recently had a hip replacement surgery, and all I could think of was Please, God, don't let this hip fall out of place. I need to just hold on to everything that I had. And behind us, we had heard people jumping and splashing. So just imagine, I, I now was the forerunner. I was leading the way. People behind me were following. And how far we had to go, where we had to go, how cold it was, how dark it was, what time of the day it was, there's absolutely no thought. You're just in this survival mode. You just Mm -hmm. go. Your body takes charge. Well, in retrospect, when you think about it, what does one imagine you're going to get to when you get to the other side of the ocean? We think about the waves hitting onto warm beach sand and the sand feeling soft. I had kicked my shoes off in the water. There was no ways I could swim with them. Lawrence was wearing leather shoes, which, of course, he couldn't get off because they were tied onto his feet. And only when we got to the other side and realized I was faced with this huge rock cliff in front of me. There was no warmth. There was nothing soft. It was like razor blades. And we started scouring our way up the rocks. Again, not knowing where we were, how far we had to go. We couldn't see anything. It was dark. It was a matter of touch and feel. And people behind us were kind of pushing us up this this chain, this ladder of people climbing up to the top of the top of the rock surface. And in all honesty, Helen, it wasn't until We stood there on land on top of the rock. And if you could visualize, we turned around and saw the devastation behind us. There were helicopters. There were rescue vessels in the water. There were sirens and flashes and obviously 
police sirens all around us. The ship in front of us was now sinking faster and faster, but it wasn't until that moment did we realize or have any thought about what we had left behind. And that to me was the first moment of panic. At that point, I recall both Lawrence and I just huddling onto each other and totally breaking down in panic, fear. We were freezing cold. It was pitch dark. There were people around us screaming. Nobody could communicate. Nobody knew what was going on and we had no idea where we were or again, how long this was going to last. And it's really quite shocking that and, and I'm not to take away from the 32 deaths, but it's quite shocking that only 32 out of 5,000 people didn't survive it, that, isn't it? Really, it really is a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. I know that, uh, that did you and Lawrence write, write your book uh, about the experience or was it just you alone? Not that no, know, it was me. Of course, I consulted with him here and there. And yeah. Uh, so I'm going to take you on to the next chapter. I think we can carry on <laughs> for hours, but oh. I do need to compartmentalize the story to yes. take you to a point of what you really want to hear. Eventually, well, I will tell you that um, I just want the listener to know that there, uh, there, the book that uh, Andrea has uh, written it is called "Survival Was the Was Only the Beginning," and I think. It's kind of a perfect time to inject that that information in here because I know, and I and Andrea, we have talked for hours, um, but I know that it is important to put that in here because that really was just the beginning of this That's part. That's right. Of the, yeah. That's right. So to to answer your question, after after the trauma, eventually. Obviously, we got back home and settled down to this thing called life. And so much had gone on and there was so much devastation from what we had left behind to what we had come home to. And I realized that the only way that I could make any sense of all this that had happened in the months gone by was to start documenting this passage of time and putting together all the information and all the communication and all the journalism. And eventually when we did get home, the press was, in fact, long before we even got home, by the time before we got to Rome, the press was just hovering all over us. And I guess understanding that we were very, we were one of the very few English-speaking couples that they could get much information. And, of course, they were like vultures. And really not until you live through this do you really understand how difficult it is to deal with the press at this time of such a trauma. So... Having been rescued off the top of the rocks that night, the locals had got to see the flashing lights on our life jackets. And they all teamed up 
and got together and began this chain of whatever it took to get us back to safety. We got taken by bus eventually. Uh, we had to walk up the other side of this cliff. It was pitch dark. There was no light. Lawrence actually ripped the light off my life vest to light up a path in front of me. And I recall hearing him just let out a scream when he said, oh my God, look at your feet. I, I didn't even realize, I had no idea that my feet were so badly shredded. Of course, it was so cold, I couldn't even feel my own body. And there was a, I recall possibly a, one of the restaurant staff, the dining staff, and my hands were in front of his cummerbund. And I hear him put his head around his shoulder and saying to me, how much do you weigh? Jump on top of my shoulders. Well, I recall he was a small little, I guess, Filipino man. And I called him Buddy and I said, Buddy, I tell you, I'm twice your size, but you've got twice my spirit. Together, we're going to get to the other side. Wow. And we became a team. We were in this together. Once we were rescued, there was so much love and so much care and so much support, so much help in all directions. Eventually, we had to, of course, make contact with our Canadian family, let them know that we had survived this accident, at which time there was no word even with the press in Canada or the Canadian embassy. They had no idea. So having made the call to our daughter, again, I just had the foresight to say to her, do what you can to get hold of the Canadian embassy. We need help to get home. We had left everything that we had owned at the time on the sinking ship. And other than the two of us together, the clothes on our back, it's all we had to go forward from then on. And how did that feel, Andrea? Because, you know, quite often when you have, again, back to our 2013 flood in Canmore, dear friends of mine, their house, everything they had was lost in that flood. And I actually, there was a few people who were like, well, it's just stuff. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, you know what? It isn't just stuff. It represents years of hard work and sweat equity, whether it's your, you know, finest pair of shoes or whatever. That's not what, it, and, I, you know, I just find that, again, people who haven't been through something like that, to say something that is just so, it really diminishes the loss. When, Helen, when, no, no, but can you speak to that? Sure, I absolutely can. Time after time, we're faced with people who say to me, you know, oh my God, I don't think that we would have been able to swim or I would never have been able to jump or I lost my house in the floods or in the fire, but it was nothing like what you had to go through. And the truth is that going through trauma, we are all faced with different trauma at different times in our lives. And to each of us, the trauma that we are faced with 
is as big as we can possibly visualize. And there's a great expression that I quote Nelson Mandela, and he says, after climbing a great hill, one only finds that there are many more hills to come. So as you get to the peak, you realize what's in front of you, and we haven't covered any territory. The losses were humongous. Eventually, days later, we get to the airport in Rome to get onto the British Airways flight after we had been taken care of by the Canadian consulate and the embassy and issued emergency travel documents and medical examinations and clothed and a toothbrush and a hairbrush. We get to the front of the counter early one morning with a stream of getting back home. And the British airway attendant at the time says, Mr. and Mrs. Davis, how many pieces of luggage do you have between you? Mm. And again, it's just people just have no conception of what it takes to get through each passage of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Eventually, when we did get home and having to start building up those lost possessions, each trauma Helen unto itself was just a humongous challenge. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you a beautiful story following the light of replacing our losses. It was weeks later we were heading to California to meet up with my sister and her family who we hadn't seen during since the accident. And I knew that I had left behind my black sandals on the cruise ship and going to California in the spring, it's what, what I was missing most. And I went to a local shoe store one Saturday morning and young girl, came to serve me and I noticed she had piercings and pink hair and just looked like somebody I couldn't communicate with. And our association is just so off key. And she said, how can I help you, ma'am? And I just burst out crying. And I said, I need a pair of black sandals, but I'm not really feeling in the mood to shop. And a woman sitting next to me looked at me and she said, Oh my God, aren't you the woman who's been in the press? Weren't you on the sinking cruise ship? Mm. And of course, I just burst out crying. And after a while, I selected a pair of shoes and I went up to the counter. The reality was people were so kind to us. This young girl couldn't have done more to help us to help me find something that would give me some form of comfort. And I went up to pay for the sandals and the attendant behind the desk said to me, your sandals were paid for by the customer in front of you. And I just started screeching and ran out to look for her to give her a hug. And she was nowhere to be seen. You know, you raise a really good topic here, Andrea, because it doesn't, matter whatever trauma you've been in there are such good people uh on this earth that they i I know 
you know, when I was going through, you know, my trauma that I went through with my divorce, and I, you know, I couldn't get, um, couldn't get, uh, what is an account to have my electricity on. And, and I, because everything had always been under my ex-husband's name. And I just burst out crying from the sheer frustration. And, you know, the woman on the phone, I will never forget how utterly kind she was and that I did get my account. Um, and, you know, whatever your experience is, is going to strike a chord with someone. And, you know, for your, your, uh, you, that part of your journey, you know, you're striking mortality here. And this is where people are like, oh my gosh, it's her. You know, do you know what I'm trying to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. Instead of, you know, then you go from the, the crush of the press to the kindness of someone who bought you a pair of shoes. Um, they really, you, you touch their heart somehow. Right. And that kindness never ends, even all these years later, Helen. I'm going to take you and the listeners a few months down the line into the next chapter of time. When I was back settled, I have a small business, a home office, and I'm as hard as it was at the time, get back to a semi-normal routine and I'm at my desk working one morning where I see there's a Facebook post in Italian and I think to myself oh my god you know they're starting to spam in from all directions and I was about to delete it when I realized this is Italian possibly somebody has found some belongings a jewelry passport, mm -hmm. something that belongs to me. So I pulled up this post, put it into Google Translate, which was the only way at the time that we could make any sense of it. And I realized it was one of our rescuers who had made contact with us via Facebook and tried to communicate. So of course, immediately after the accident, there were various Facebook posts pages and groups that started from different sectors in different languages all over the world. And I had started a page called Survivors of the Costa Concordia. So she had come across this page and obviously recognized us and immediately made contact. And the only way we could communicate in those years was on Skype. And the magnificence of making these connections together with these people who were so influential and had such a huge impact on our survival and on the reality of helping us to get home to our family and to pick up the pieces. And immediately I said to her in that first conversation, I know my journey of healing will only begin when we can get back to the island to hug and thank each and every one of you for the roles you took in bringing us back home. And wow. from that very conversation, I recall closing up the Skype meeting and shouting out to my husband, we're going back to Italy. Okay, so this is a perfect spot to stop because I need to take a break. And then as soon as you come back, we'll pick up on this, okay? 
Uh, you are listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. My guest today is Andrea Davis, survivor of the Costa Concordia, one of many survivors, her and her husband, Lawrence. We will be right back. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? <laughs> I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven-module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand, and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. You are listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. Thanks for the break, Andrea. You had talked about reaching out to the people that had essentially uh, had a big part in, in your survival of, of that um, horrible night. So I'm going to let you continue on. Okay, so at that point in time, I had started documenting and keeping folders and files of all this information. And to take you back to a conversation we'd had a few minutes ago, when you asked if my husband was involved in writing the book with me or if I did this on my own, it was mostly a collection of my memories. And when we spoke about what he remembered at such a moment or what he thought somebody might have said or somebody might have done, we both have such totally different memories and our visuals of the same thing at the same time looked so different. So I realized at the time, this was not something that we could put together, together. And I went ahead and I didn't feel that I had enough to write a book. I knew nothing about writing. I was, I had never thought about this before. But all I thought about was journaling or making a collection of all that had been documented in this passage of time. After that first conversation that I had with our rescuers and I put on the phone, I realized this is where the story is going to take off from. Because the story and my life from that moment on was not, in fact, the trauma of the accident. In fact, it was just the beginning. So it took on a totally different visual. And we started planning our trip back to the island, where, of course, was really difficult because, again, of the barrier in communication. But... During the days following our rescue in Rome, we had met up with an ex-American woman married to an Italian man who appeared at one of the rescue centers 
And I call her my guardian angel because without Erica, there's no ways I could have, we could have found our way back to whatever was expected from us at the time. So I called up Erica and I said, Erica, I need help. We need to come back. We're coming back to the island we're going to be visiting in July. And I need you to help me plan this trip. And she said to me at the time, it's just two buses and a train and we'll be at the ferry to meet you. And it was Friday the 13th of July in the very same year, exactly six months later. And we arrived back. What? um, That ferry ride. What was that ferry ride like? Oh, goodness. Helen, you are amazing. You just touch on (laughs) such pertinent topics. I I don't know. Well, this is why I love what I do. You know, I I love this. And I, you know, I always feel a bit, I don't know if I feel bad, but it's sort of like, man, you know, I don't want to be this kind of this little sharky person that is, you know, kind of digging into people's trauma and stuff. But it's so important to, to. to hear it, right? I mean, it's so relatable to everybody's trauma. You know, that is had to have been a massive trigger. Oh, it, it was just horrific, horrific. And as we're talking now, I'm looking up in the wall on the wall of my office where we have a magnificent photograph that was presented to us when we reached the island. And there's a picture of our reunification with the family when we landed at the airport. There's a picture of the sinking cruise ship. And then there's a picture in front of me of Lawrence and I approaching the wreck. And again, I tell you, as I'm telling you the story, my body becomes hollow. I, the, the gore and the gut and the emotion that we were faced with in that journey as we approached the island, the wreck of the Concordia was in front of us. I don't mm-hmm. know if you or your audience recall how long it actually took them to raise the shipwreck and to decide what to do thereafter. So, so standing there looking at the wreck. My recollection was just this mass of rusted metal. But one can only imagine the the magnitude, the volume, how huge this monster was in front of me that you have that you cannot perceive that a tiny little human being like Lawrence and I could have evaded the horrific alternative of this massive metal being on top of us. So there's a very pertinent emotional feeling that I recall on that journey. The day after the accident, we were taken across to the Canadian Embassy after lots of ironing out complications. And a wonderful lady who was helping us brought in Ambassador Fox. I was introduced. Meet Mrs. Davis. This is my survivor. Oh. And the blood went from my head to my toes. We had been brought up 
in a Jewish home with a Jewish identity. And history all around us talks about survivors. But not until this moment did I feel any form of entitlement to walk around with this title. This was the first moment realizing this massive wreck in front of me, just what it actually took for us to have survived and to be back at this very point geographically and in time. Mm -hmm. And you just realize the miracles of life. Mm -hmm. it, it was a magnificent trip. It was a magnificent reunion of just wonderful, wonderful people. Where was we there got any, any talk of survivor's guilt at any time in these groups that you had reconnected with? Oh, yes, totally. Yeah. The... Yeah. The morning after the first night in the hotel in Rome, Lawrence and I, neither of us could sleep. And of course, there were only two computers in the whole hotel that we could use to make contact with the family. Of course, we had no phones or anything. Of course, everything was washed away or left behind on the ship. So at long before the crack of dawn, I said to Lawrence, if we don't get up early, there's going to be a mass of people at the computer. We need to go back and communicate with the kids. Mm -hmm. And standing at the computer was another husband and wife, couple, coincidentally, Canadians. And to this very day, we have the most magnificent relationship. So Laura and Alan had only got onto the ship in the afternoon in Rome, and they had not cruised. They had just got off the plane, got into the ship, and then they were faced with the trauma. Well, only after when we started talking over the days, and Alan realized that we had absolutely nothing. They had gotten off the ship onto one of the first lifeboats and got taken to the island in comfort, clothed, jackets, dry, were their handbag with their cameras and their phones and everything that they had on their bodies, other than their wallets and passports, which they had locked up in the safe. Well, to this day, Laurie suffers tremendous guilt of having had such a relatively, comparatively easy escape to what we had gone through at the time. And before we parted, Alan ripped off his belt and inside his belt, he had a money wallet stashed and he took out, if I recall, it was a hundred euro or 200 euro. And, but I just remember feeling so confident. We now had our own money and Wow, that money bought us an incredible friendship. Where we're still in contact, they live in Wingham, Ontario, and we've made a couple of trips cross-country to meet up with them. And today have a wonderful relationship with many of our co-survivors and, of course, with our rescuers, who we've kept in touch with all these years. 
Uh, when you get together with your uh, co-survivors, is there ever a time when you don't talk about the Con Costa Concordia or is it always kind of mentioned or now you're just a group of friends? Well, I would say both. It took a very long time. And again, Lawrence had a very much more difficult time in removing himself from the prospect of this conversation. Whereas I felt that I needed to wean myself off it and move on. So we all react in different ways. Of but of course, we, you know, we got into that cruise ship one person and got off a different person mm -hmm. and we'll never be able to remove ourselves from it. No. And need I tell you, you know, the, the trauma that we went through, the relationships that had changed, our families, our friends, people were so much more needy. They had to hold on to us. When we started traveling after, we were always faced with what ifs in front of us. And only gradually over the years, the reality set in where I realized, you know, this is not just emotions. I had and still have PTSD lingering with me for years. Oh, um, I, I think that you will always, like you said, you got on one person, you got on Andrea Davis, you got on an entirely different, you got off that and not in great circumstances, an entirely different Andrea Davis, of course. I mean, really, when you guys get together with your co-survivors, I would imagine for a while it was almost like one one big support group because no one else could possibly even know how you felt about that moment. Even the people going through the same experience don't feel the same as you do or each other. You know what I mean? That's right. And that's what I try to explain that not even Lawrence and I could support each other in what we were experiencing or feeling or the thoughts and emotions that we were each living with at the time. They say we all have two lives and the second one only starts when we realize we only have one. So it's, it's, you know, life has become very complex and living with traumas that we're faced with, a PTSD following, they've been, of course, as you mentioned, the first magnitude of a huge trauma was the floods in Alberta the fires in BC, the fires in northern Alberta, and more recently what's most tangible is what we're all living through right now. And the trauma that we had to face at the onset of this pandemic and the current situation of the uncertainty and the unknown and taking each moment with so little information that we can hold on to and trust. And mm -hmm. Helen, the initial few weeks for me took me right back to the get-go of these horrid feelings that I was living with at the time. There was total disconnection. Well, you're now walking again, in not literally, but you're now walking into the dark, the screaming. You know, if you want to, you know, we're talking, we're we're watching people on Facebook panicking, and and they're everyone's so afraid of what their future looks like. 
I mean, you're, you are, you're right back into that very same thing and uh, the same emotions. Their emotions are emotions are emotion. And so, you know, we had talked about that at length. You know, those traumas, uh, we, we carry them. They, they, it's not a one and done. You don't get off, you don't heal and then you carry on till the next one. You know, you're always carrying it with you and that's the whole, you know, that's what my work is, is like, how do you carry it? Because it's not going to go away. They're whispers, they're ghosts, they're triggers and all of that. The, the health comes in or the survival comes in and in recognizing those and knowing that, okay, here it is. I'm, I don't have to go into survival mode. Um, and, but it's happening. And hopefully you've built up enough of an emotional toolbox that you're able to recognize that you're being triggered or you rec, you're remembering horrible moments from your past. And it's like, okay, how, how am I going to do this? You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, you have, you said it beautifully. Grief is, um, it's not linear. And, and it is time and it, and it is moments that you're always going to remember and uh, visualize. You don't pre-plan for your traumas. That's right. And I, I relate back to a quotation that I heard Mitch Albom quote, a quoting from Tuesdays with Maury when Maury said to him, don't let go too soon and don't hang on too long. Yeah, you just don't beautiful. know when is that perfect time. We don't recognize it within ourselves. And mm -hmm. here over these 10 years, time after time in various avenues and opportunities in life, both Lawrence and I have been approached to tell the story as I am doing now and to share it with different audiences be it a small group of volunteers in a volunteer appreciation or a larger keynote presentation where I'm telling the story and I'm trying to share the magnificence of the survival and my strength and the courage that I have lived with. And yet time after time, I'm faced with the reality of Am I telling a story that I can honestly have faith and believe in myself? Because it's not possible to ever remove yourself from this passage in time. I and find that when I'm, when I'm telling my stories, uh, you know, of my childhood in particular, um, sometimes I feel like I'm standing outside of it and I become the storyteller. And it's almost like you have to go into that third person mode in order to be able to tell it without getting dragged down into uh, the details of the trauma that you're actually still remembering and not necessarily at the same intensity. Although there are times, I'm sure you can attest to this, that the intensity is indeed exactly the same as it was on that day uh, when the trauma happened. And that's the truth. And yet we're all encouraged to put on this pretense that it's now time to move on. It's now time to get up on the other side of the bed. It's now time to face the reality of the real world. But nobody can ever deny you the strength of those true feelings. That's and right. nobody can ever remove you, this from what you're feeling at the time. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really is hard, Helen. I'm not denying there's been many days where it's really hard because 
You attempt to, to show up with a brave face. You attempt to put on a front to encourage other people to find the strength to do what it takes. I'm here to support you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to teach you. We're in this together. We're going through this pandemic together. I have survived. I have overcome. I'm going to do this again. And, yeah, and the thing is, is and, and I and I find, and you, pro- I, I'm, I'm hoping you would agree with me that um, quite often, you know, not quite often, always, we have our own theories on um, how we would behave in in any situation. When the reality is, you, you know, you really don't know they're just theories until you're actually standing in it. And I think that's when you have to find. I mean, we we're we're covering topics that really are. We are all looking at these things right now. You're right, during COVID. And it's like, how are we going to get through this with some health and with some forgiveness and for love with each other without panicking? And I I have to ask you a question. Did you find forgiveness for the captain of that ship? Because his life uh, also changed forever on that day. Oh, Helen, you blow me away. (laughs) You blow me away. (laughs) And to do that. And I'm going to take people. you back one more step when you say, how are we ever going to? When I think to myself that my, my anchor has been over the last few years to trust in the universe and that we're being brought along to a path of where we are meant to be. This doesn't happen by chance. The universe is guiding us. And I have a very big remaining chapter in this journey of survival. And I dream to have the opportunity to get back to the island once again. I dream to have the opportunity to be face to face with the captain who is now living through the most horrendous passage of time. He has lost everything that he once had. He is living with guilt, with pain, with broken relationships. Horrific life has been dealt to him. How can we judge that the trauma we've lived through has been harder than he's living through. How can we decide on what opportunity is the right opportunity to forgive? To forgive a husband for bad things that he's said, a child for deceit, a parent for not believing in you, all kinds of things. But we all have to look and feel and believe that if we are allowed the privilege of forgiveness, how do we approach this? What right have we got to hang on to this awful judgment? Well, and that is so beautifully said, and and that's where, this is where true freedom comes. Um, That's right. Yes, you walk away from those experiences, and yes, you survive them, and yes, you are flashbacks to them, and yes, you are still trying to process it, 
And yes, you're questioning God or the universe or source or whoever that is for you. Um, but at the end of the day, we are all just human and we are, we all do make mistakes. And, uh, boy, oh boy, there are things each and every one of us have done and, and not maybe on that scale of that, that man, but, um, you know, to not be forgiven is really, um, not fair and, and easy for me to say, but I've had to forgive a number of people along my journey and I've, and I've hoped that people have forgiven me for some things that I've done. And you're absolutely right. That man wakes up every single day and remembers what happened on that day more so than anybody else, not talking about the people that were on it. But for me, you know, for everyone, it was the, you know, the press, you know, your friends, your family that watched you survive it. There's just really no point to holding on to that, that anger and that judgment because my goodness, I, yeah, you know what I mean? Of course, Helen, and and again, I have to take my own personal history back to your audience and talk about as an ex-South African and a child being brought up in the apartheid era and now having the privilege of being removed from the post-apartheid era. One of our generation, our societies most magnificent idols is Nelson Mandela. Mm -hmm. And if he has been able to teach the entire world the, the brilliance and the tangibility and the reward of forgiveness, who better example can we reach up to? I know he's a pretty amazing man. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's beautifully said. So... Andrea, I feel like we could probably do about six podcasts on all of the, uh, of all of the uh, fallout of an experience such as yours and Lawrence's. And um, I mean, we don't we don't have the time to do it today. But uh, you know, I I think that um, you were you found your gift. I mean, I I know you. I I know how lovely you are um, as a human being. And to be able to have the strength to relive it every time you talk about it, um, that says a, that says a lot to the, the power of forgiveness and the power of courage and all of those things, whether you feel them or not. I thank you so much for joining me today. I, I really do wish we could carry on. Um, but is there any final words you wanted to, um, you know, maybe, um, send out to our listeners? Well, Helen, really, my gratitude to you is just amazing. Your questions have been so pertinent and really triggered so many memories. As hard as it is to face, I'm so animated when I have the privilege of sharing the story, my feelings, my emotions, and all that we've lived with, both during at the time and life thereafter. And I often say in conversation that we have to stop to think, is there a reason? Why was I selected to survive? What did we do to overcome something that could have been a bigger trauma? And having had the privilege of this opportunity of survival, I take upon myself the privilege of being able to speak and to share and to help other people to 
see the light in a very difficult situation that one is faced with in all walks of life. And I question myself the reason that we were selected and know that we have a purpose and we have to recognize the opportunity of the gift of survival. And I really thank you for the time that you've spent with me and it's just been a wonderful conversation. And we seem to always have those really good <laughs> conversations, don't we? We um, do. Yeah, and that was your gift. We're going to have this over a bottle of wine one day. <laughs> okay, when this darn COVID's over with. You're right. So, You're right. Um, If nothing else, just a hug of appreciation. Thank yes, you, Ellen. Absolutely. Uh, if uh, anyone would like uh, the title of Andrea's book is Survival Was Only the Beginning, I encourage anyone to uh, get that. Andrea, thank you for joining me today, sharing stories with Helen Rose. And uh, that is a wrap. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Helen. And just wish you good health and strength to overcome whatever facing us. Yeah. And I'm sending you virtual uh, Zoom hugs right now. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. And I extend those to our audience. <laughs> Yes, for sure. Thanks, okay. Helen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Sharing Stories with Helen Rose. To learn more about Helen's journaling retreats, speaking engagements, and life coaching, or to sign up for her newsletter, please visit HelenRose.ca. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.